Hello, and welcome to the So What podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues that ask the obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly and Travis Buchanan. Well, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the So What podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at sowhatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episode can be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the So What Podcast. So here in our new studio home on the campus of the University of Mobile is our usual cast. Myself, Kyle Bashirs, Matt O'Reilly. Good afternoon. And Travis Buchanan. Hello. Hello. We also have joining with us for the very first time, Lanier Wood. Good to be with y'all. Well, on the line, we are honored to have with us Chris Castaldo, who is lead pastor of New Covenant Church in Naperville, Illinois and the co-author of Unfinished Reformation, What Unites and Divides Catholics and Protestants After 500 Years. That was written with Greg Allison, who we've formerly had on the show, and the book is published by Zondervan. A former Roman Catholic himself, Chris is interested in exploring how evangelical Protestants, most of whom are not from a Catholic background, understand and relate to Catholics and spiritual conversions. And he enjoys looking for the nuances in doctrine and practices that differ between Roman Catholics and Protestants with the specific goal of learning how we may have fruitful discussions about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Chris, thank you so much for being on So What Podcast. It's a joy to have you. Thanks, Kyle. My pleasure. So why don't we start off by asking a very simple question. Why is the evangelical Catholic dialogue important to you? Well, for me, it was personal. I was uh, raised Catholic. My friends and family were all Catholic. I was raised in Long Island, New York. And so when I came to Christ in a personal way, I began to share my faith, but it was a train wreck every time I tried because I would assert what the Bible teaches and find my Catholic friends didn't quite believe the Bible and found myself relating to them sort of like a foaming at the mouth pit bull. So, you know, asking these questions, how can I be a winsome witness? And I soon discovered if I'm going to do that among my Catholic loved ones, then I need to understand what they believe and where they're coming from. So for me, that was the start of this exploration. So when you say that you are sharing the gospel with Roman Catholics, what do you mean by that? Because if we're coming from a Roman Catholic perspective, that might sound like a shocking statement to be made. That's a great question, because I don't want to suggest that all Catholics are categorically outside of Christ and therefore in need of the gospel. You know, I have numerous friends whom I regard as brothers and sisters in Christ. So why do we share the gospel? Well, I think fundamentally we do it as a matter of our identity in Christ. Jesus, the light of the world, advanced the kingdom wherever he went, and we as his children follow his footsteps. We seek to do the same. We seek to embody and proclaim the good news. So, you know, when we get together as as evangelical Protestants, I want to convey Christ to you in such a way that encourages your faith. And for that matter, I need to preach the gospel to myself each and every day, right? You know, reminding Chris that he's no longer defined by sin. So to say that we 
need to share the gospel is not necessarily a judgment upon that other person's faith, Catholic or otherwise, but it is rather a statement about who we are as evangelicals. But it is the case that there are many Catholics who are not quite clear on the gospel. And in that case, I think it is evangelism in the way we typically use that word. If it's a brother or sister who knows Jesus in a personal way, then I would say it's something closer to what we call discipleship. So Chris, when you're having a discussion with a Roman Catholic friend who is maybe not clear on the gospel, what sort of obstacles, or or are there a handful of common obstacles that maybe people face when in your effort to persuade them to uh, an evangelical gospel? Yeah. So when I'm talking with a Catholic friend, I'm trying to ask smart, respectful questions and ascertain where they're coming from. To what extent do they understand and own the gospel? And I find typically my Catholic friends fall into one of three categories, at least here in the United States. They are either the cultural or the traditional, that is the pre-Vatican II variety, if you will, or the evangelical slash charismatic. And each of those types is defined by a particular source of authority upon which they stand. So for the evangelical, the Bible is really at the center of their faith, and they have had some sort of personal conversion experience. A traditional Catholic hasn't had those things and tends to define themselves by Catholic distinctives over and against Protestantism. The cultural Catholic is a nominal Christian, when maybe that's not even the best way to say it, is a nominal religious person. Christ is not at the center of their lives. They don't think about God. They don't pray. So I think it's helpful for us to understand the place from which these friends are coming from, and then we're in a position to respond to them. So Matt, to your question, it really depends on the particular Catholic person, and I want to do my best to understand and relate to that one in a way that best serves their needs. It seems we've we've jumped straight into the deep end of the pool here in discussing salvation right up at the beginning, and that's great, and I hope we'll cover some areas of commonality as well as important differences. But I'm looking at the table of contents of the book you co-authored with Greg Allison, The Unfinished Reformation, and this is where the book concludes. Chapter 6 is Key Differences Between Protestants and Catholics concerning salvation, and then the last chapters on the gospel of Jesus Christ, hope for both Protestants and Catholics. So I wonder if you might, if it's a fair question, for listeners, distill what those key differences are, as discussed in that chapter, or just generally, where you see the key differences on the doctrine of salvation as taught by the Roman Catholic Church today versus a more traditional evangelical understanding, I guess, of the doctrine of salvation. How far apart are those two sets of teachings, and are they so far apart as to, from the evangelical perspective, endanger the true salvation of a faithful or, by the book, catechized Catholic? Right, right. So we're asking the question, why is an individual accepted by God, embraced as a child of God? And the Catholic and Protestant have a great deal of agreement in the way we answer that question. We look to the Trinity, the Father predestines, however we might understand predestination. The Son comes and gives his life, the incarnate Savior, and is raised from the dead. And the Spirit of Holiness who raised Jesus 
applies that work to the life of the sinner, making one a child of God. I mean, there's really quite a lot we can say together. However, when we ask the question, why are we accepted? What is the fundamental basis of our relationship with God? That's when Catholics and Protestants disagree. And for the Catholic, it is a matter of someone being made righteous, having the righteousness of God infused one's soul, uh, Romans 5, 5, being poured into an individual such that they are made holy, and on that basis is justified or accepted. That's the Catholic view, quite different from the Protestant understanding, which identifies the ground or basis of our acceptance as the righteousness of Christ that is attributed or imputed to us. It's Christ's work on the cross, the benefits of which extend to us by faith, and we would say faith alone from a Reformed point of view, that constitute the reason why we are children of God. So I think we need to recognize that there's a whole lot on which we agree and not be afraid to identify those things and enjoy as much unity as we possibly can there but also be clear about the fact that our doctrines of justification are fundamentally different when we ask the question, why? So when it comes down to the Protestant-Catholic divide, a lot of the things that you have just said we've heard over the course of this series through the preaching and the teaching of the Reformers. I wonder, though, are there misconceptions or caricatures of disagreements between evangelicals and Catholics that you find prominent on both sides of the fence? I'm glad you asked that question, Kyle, because there are, and I would say the most common with regard to justification, at least, is the idea that Catholics believe one is saved by works, period, and Protestants believe that it is only faith, full stop. Both of those are incorrect as far as they go. Catholics are really quite clear that it's divine grace that draws an individual to Christ, That's what's happening in first actual grace. They're not Pelagian. They don't believe that one's faith originates in his volition or will. It's grace. And they believe that faith is central to that equation. But there is the need for meritorious works in order for someone, Rome says, to be fully and finally accepted by God. On the other hand, you have Protestant teaching at its best, that is faithfully reflective of the Reformation, which says genuine faith will necessarily issue forth in virtue or good works. There's no such thing as a faith that doesn't lead to works. So in a certain sense, our justification includes works as the requisite fruit that follows. So it's unhelpfully reductionistic to say that for Catholics, it's all about works, and for you know Protestants, it's all about faith. Both of those things are necessary to each tradition. We just orient them in different ways. Yes, but Chris, you see, it's, it's easier just to reduce the, <laughs> the issues down to those two things and, and move forward. Knowing that, how would you recommend we get rid of those caricatures and, and those misunderstandings? Are there ways that we can help ourselves remember or better articulate one another's beliefs. Because when I'm speaking with Roman Catholics, you've helpfully come up with those three categories. I think there's a wide variety of categories within Protestantism as well. I'm reminded just recently of Pew Forum 
poll came out on the eve of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation that shows that Americans, by and large, even if they claim to be Protestant, don't really know what the solas are. So there isn't really the Protestant distinctions between Roman Catholics or Protestants featuring within American Protestantism, and surely that will bleed over into evangelicalism. So maybe speaking from a pastoral perspective— or a lay leader perspective, how can we help not only understand the beliefs of Roman Catholics from an evangelical perspective, but our own beliefs in order to be able to articulate them to Roman Catholic friends? Yeah, great question. So concerning the first one, I would say find a Catholic friend and go out for coffee or whatever it is you, you like to drink and listen to them. And you'll discover that the picture isn't quite as clear, as simple as you might have thought at first. There's a great deal for us to gain in those sorts of relationships because each tradition brings certain strengths to the table. So I've got Catholic friends with whom I connect occasionally. I'm constantly challenged when they talk about their moral theology or commitment to prayer in Christ-centered ways. So I think practically speaking, there's a lot to be said. I think every pastor should have such a friend so as to prevent us from those embarrassing reductionisms. But concerning your second question about Protestantism, it's important to note that those three types I described with regard to Catholics, the traditional, the evangelical, and the cultural, apply to Protestants just as easily. And in fact, you could probably say that of just about every religion. Think of Judaism and think of Islam. There tends to be the more fundamentalist variety There tends to be the the more congenial expression. And then there are those who are simply nominal as a matter of one's ethnic background, for example. So those categories are not intended to call out Catholics so much as just provide some basic sociological designations by which we might be able to understand them better. So is the Reformation finished? <laughs> Thank you, Matt. <laughs> a, quick, a quick Google search of that today pulled up about— Well, in the book— 20 articles. Well, well situate us—so who wrote the book a couple of years ago about the Reformation being over? Was it Noel or— Right, Mark Nolan. Mark Nolan. Mark Nolan, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So yeah. he's argued that the Reformation you know, ought to be over, I think. You seem to take a different view of the title of your book. Fill us in a little bit. 500 years here after the fact on uh, that debate and what it has to do with average folks in local churches. Yeah. Well, in our book, The Unfinished Reformation, Greg Allison and I offer three answers, but we land on one. We say first, yes, it is over. Catholics and Protestants, generally speaking, are not impaling or drowning one another as they were back in the 16th century. Speak for your own context there. Yeah, right. so we're <laughs> coming from Italy, right? So, you know, so now we have Catholic friends, and we we go out to a coffee shop, and we we can disagree, but we maintain friendship, and we pray for one another's families, and and so in terms of the you know socio political antagonism, the life or death polemics that were true five centuries ago, we are thankfully not in that situation today. Though you still might. Pray for one another's salvation, perhaps. We might, depending on, yeah. And I think that's okay. I mean, I think it's good we don't put these things on point of sword anymore. But that's not to say that the theological differences that we're causing 
executions or inquisitions. Well, maybe not all the inquisitions, but I mean, some of these things were over live issues that are still perhaps live issues mm-hmm. right. in the church today, though thankfully we are more civilized toward one another and hopefully more Christ-like in, in uh, yes. How, yes. We, how we treat those. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt No, your it's point. a great just, point. You know, when my, my friend Mike tells me he's praying for me and he'd like to see me come home, by which he means home to Rome, I say thank you because I know he loves me and he recognizes, you know, full apostolic authority to be vested in the institution of the one holy Catholic apostolic church. And he wants to see me enjoying that. And so rather than getting offended, I say, thank you. And I want to see him drawn closer to Christ in a more evangelical way. And we're just being honest. So it's a new day. So, right. So the first answer is yes, it's over. But then we say, no, it's not over the reformation with regard to the fundamental differences that separated us in the first place, namely religious authority and the doctrine of justification. There have been some developments. Vatican II now calls Protestants separated brethren as opposed to damn heretics. So, you know, that's an improvement to be sure. But the same differences remain and keep us separated. We are not welcome to the communion table at a local Catholic parish because we are out of communion. So no. And then the place where Greg Allison and I land in the book is no but to say the Reformation continues, but thankfully these developments allow us to engage relationships with Catholics in a way that is constructive and in a way that highlights the character of Christ. Thinking of the connectional things and reading a little bit of your response to Lightheart's writing on the end of Protestantism, which was really helpful and very insightful as far as just understanding some of those connections and disconnections, is there ecclesial unity that can be shared or pursued? Yeah. So I I enjoyed reading Peter Lightheart's book, The End of Protestantism, and, and writing the review for Themelios. And I'll say, I appreciate very much what Peter is trying to do there. He's first off saying, look, we have a history that goes back through the centuries as Protestants. This is not a new thing. This is not the ditch theory, right, which says that you know, Orthodox Christian faith went in the ditch at Constantine and only to reemerge in 1517, 85% of the way from the ditch until the founding of my particular denomination, a church, at which time then pristine apostolic Christianity was restored. That's the way a lot of Christians on the ground understand church history. Peter's saying, no, this is our history, so we need to be students of the fathers and the medieval Christian thinkers and so forth. And then he emphasizes the importance of us fulfilling Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we would be one. And so this will require, if I can summarize Peter's argument, the end of Protestantism. He casts a vision in which we are able to enjoy the table together and and share a common creed and engage ministry. And I think all of that is wonderful, and we ought to be thinking that way and praying for those things. But I came away feeling like it is so idealistic and is so removed from reality. And in order for any of that to be true, Rome is going to need to overturn many of her fundamental convictions with regard to apostolic authority. And so it's hard to see how most of that would find application given the ecclesial realities of where we find ourselves today. 
So I want to applaud the vision, but I'm afraid that most of what I read there is not a reflective of what we're actually dealing with. I guess to answer the question, should there be or have we seen or will we see the end of Protestantism, we would need to know, is there anything left over which we would protest Mm -hmm. with respect to the Roman Catholic Church? So perhaps you've already hit on this in places, and I know your book goes into greater detail, but would you be able to distill a few things that still require, if one were to rejoin the Catholic Church, where would be those things that you would still protest over, or what what issues would need to be resolved for an evangelical to, in good conscience, submit to the authority of the, of the Roman Catholic Church? Yeah, so we've talked about the issue of justification a bit, The other issue is, of course, authority, the formal principle of the Reformation and our difference from Rome. And uh, the way Greg and I describe that is in terms of the incarnational impulse of Rome. So if we were to differentiate the authority structure of Rome compared to Protestantism in general, one way of doing it is to say, for the Catholic, It is the continuous incarnation of Christ in the church, in the institutional church, or in other words that they use, the prolongation of Jesus that gives rise to her authority. And so we we both recognize a correlation between Jesus and the Christian life. For the Catholic, it's the ongoing incarnation of Jesus in the institutions and organs of the Roman church. That's where you encounter apostolic authority. That's where you find real presence of Jesus, chiefly in the Eucharist, the source and and summit of faith. And it's from there you have the Catholic understanding of God's Word that consists of both Scripture and sacred tradition, interpreted by the third source of authority, the magisterium, the teaching office of the Church, all three of those working together in order to provide the revelation of God and the liturgical forms of Catholicism. That is to be distinguished from the Protestant understanding. And for Protestants, the correlation is not between Jesus in heaven and the institutional church. It is rather Jesus, the living word at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus, the written word, the inspired text of Scripture. And so we look to the Bible as the place where we encounter infallible revelation and apostolic authority. I say all that to say, I think we need to do business with our different understanding of that issue if we're going to make headway on the myriad of differences that we have with regard to belief and practice. So Greg and I are pointing to that matter of incarnation as a fundamental difference that we must understand and contend with if we're going to make any headway in our ecumenical dialogue. Chris, I've got a, a good friend who is a, he hasn't converted to Roman Catholicism, but is very sympathetic and loves Catholicism. And one of the things for him is he finds sort of the Protestant understanding of Scripture to be just, if not incoherent, stunningly unhelpful. To have a magisterium who tells you the authoritative interpretation is lovely, helpful, and beautiful. You know, for him, 
Well, the Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterians can argue about the meaning of Romans 9 all day long and never come to anything. And for him, it's far simpler just to have the magisterium tell him, here's what this means. So what would you uh, say to someone in a situation you know, like that, where the question is authority and interpretation and hermeneutics and those kinds of things? Well, I would say first, your right to look for unity. Unity is important. The question is around what must we be unified? Catholic operating from that institutional framework, unity is understood in hierarchical terms. You are in communion with the Bishop of Rome and the church over which he presides as head. And that communion has a common liturgy, governance, and faith. There is your unity. And so it's a real problem to have Protestantism with its various denominations and beliefs and, you know, confessional statements that disagree with one another. I think we all feel that frustration at times when we disagree. But the question is, does Scripture, from our point of view as Protestants, we would say, does Scripture have a revealed interest in that kind of unity? And I'm not sure it does. I mean, what I read Paul talking about is Christians who now see through a dim glass, our understanding of truth is imperfect, and it will be continue to be so until we see Jesus face to face. And instead of us agreeing in an institutionalized unity that is one of doctrinal detail on the finer points, governance, and liturgy across the board— I think that the vision of Scripture is instead for us to rally around this common message of the gospel. That's the locus of our unity. And then in our various cultures and personalities and communities, there will be variety in the way that we experience and apply this faith in its detail. You know, it's interesting, Matt, that you're the one who's asking this question, because you know, you and I are part of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You're Methodist. I'm Reformed. We disagree on certain things, but we come together and enjoy a lovely quality of unity in the gospel, and there's not a, a bit of opposition or division in that relationship. I think that's the biblical vision, and I think that's the difference between evangelicals and Catholics. So we might wrap it up by saying the thing for Protestants especially is to find ways to make our gospel unity visible to the world instead of bickering over, you know, kind of second-order things like mode of baptism or something like that. Let's find a way to, to get together and partner and let the world see that the, uh, the gospel is lovely and powerful through that visible partnership and mission. And when we talk about our differences, I think it's okay to be honest. We need to recognize yeah, them. But, sure. we, but we do it in a spirit of love. It's really interesting to read Augustine on Christian teaching, where he talks about difficult passages of the Bible we can't quite agree upon. At that point, instead of pointing to the magisterium as the proper way forward, he says, God has given us these difficult texts in order to engender humility in our hearts and to promote humble interactions in the body of Christ. Maybe that should be uh, inserted as a preface to Romans 9 in every translation. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's helpful. Thank you, Chris. I would say 
we should not make the mistake of equating fidelity to the gospel with anti-Catholicism. That's my concern. I'm so delighted to see Christians who are enthusiastic about commemorating the Reformation this year. It's good. Let it lead us into deep theological reflection and engagement with other Christians, even Catholics. But let's not get so excited about our Reformation heritage that we begin to emulate the same rhetoric of the 16th century, which again was was so vitriolic and divisive. But let's do it differently. Let's take theology seriously and at the same time take the people with whom we speak seriously, seeing in them the image of God, and in so doing uphold grace and truth as the balance that Christ calls us to. So Chris, I was curious about the the very beginning of the book you include before the acknowledgments, part of a stanza from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. Eliot was a notable American who spent much of his career living in England and became Anglican and then converted to Catholicism. And I'll just read the the seven lines or so that are included there and then ask why you and Greg chose that as a kind of a leitmotif for the for the book. The dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror, of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and air. The only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre, to be redeemed from fire by fire. So Eliot here is using this imagery in a way that calls to mind Pentecost, that great event of redemptive history when, when God poured his spirit out upon the church. And a reason why Greg and I chose this text is because that's what we need. If we're going to faithfully represent Christ, even in our relationships among Catholic and loved ones, we need the empowering presence of God by the Spirit. We don't have the wisdom to navigate this course. And so we wanted to start off with recognition of that fact I think it's essential for us to remain clear on that all the way through, that Christ is building his church, and it is according to his grace by the Spirit that we are going to fulfill this calling to which we have been called. 